Welcome to Locked On NFL. Today's episode of Locked On NFL is brought to you by Built Bar. And remember, with promo code Locked On, you get $10 off your first box of Built Bars at BuiltBar.com. You can even build your own box, which is a nice feature there, and get just the flavors you like at BuiltBar.com. On today's episode, we are talking AFC South, draft grades, draft review. There is some news to get to, Matt, and uh, really the the first bit of news that I think we should talk about here is that the NFL family lost uh, a great one. Don Shula, gone at the age of 90, such an amazing career, and I know you're a big football fan, and, and you watched a lot of those teams back in the day. The Dan Marino Dolphins are the ones that really jump out, but he also coached Still, to this day, the league's only unbeaten team from week one through the Super Bowl in 1972. Fantastic career, 33 years coaching pro football, 26 of those with the Miami Dolphins. Yeah, I mean, an absolute monster in the NFL world, a huge legend. I mean, the all-time winningest coach. And I think some a couple of things that I think of when I think of Shula is I mean, everyone, I think, thinks about the undefeated team, as you mentioned, and his great time in Miami. But, I mean, even go back further. I mean, this guy went from Unitas and the Colts and those teams that were amazing, and then he takes over a Miami team with a no-name defense, which to me screams great coaching. You know, it's not like he had LT and Butkus and, you know, incredible players. And Greasy, who was an absolute – Game manager, and I don't mean that negatively, but running the ball, three-headed backfield, Zonka, kick, Mercury, Morris. I always think of Shula as being like the always the, the least penalized team in the league, disciplined. And then he reinvents himself in, what, 83, 84? Yeah. And we're not going to play that discipline, you know, grind it out defense. And we're going to let Danny M – throw it to the Mark brothers like nobody else. I mean, to me, that's a great, that, that's, you know, a Belichickian thing. Or, I mean, some of these great coaches adapt when they realize, boy, I just got a gift in the first round with number 13, and we're going to sling it all over the yard. Um, huge. I mean, I, 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 I don't mean this in a negative way, but when I heard the news, I thought, is he the, the Mount Rushmore of coaches? And if you're to put four there, I think Belichick, Walsh, Lombardi, and probably Coach Brown would be there. And then Shula would be knocking on the door. Yeah, Shula, Landry, there are definitely enough uh, candidates for that. But Shula would have to be in the conversation at least there. Yeah. And a few things that you mentioned there were uh, that, that sort of blow me away because I, I, for, I kind of forget, you know, because I, I think of that, that was the first – uh, Shula teams I saw was Dan Marino, you know, in the later 80s, and he coached the Dolphins until 1995. But the Marino, Clayton, and Duper, that was what I remember, but completely different style of football that he was coaching with Zonka. Uh, No-name defense. I think those are great points by you and such a fantastic career. Some of the things that blow me away, first of all, almost uh, what, over 65% winning percentage in the NFL as a coach for coaching that long. Only had two losing seasons in those 26 years with the Dolphins. Twice did he have a below 500 record, which is insane. That's crazy, right? I mean, that's a long stretch and only two. And people need to remember, I mean, with some of these great teams like the Patriots of re- recent years, if you're that type of team, you don't ever pick in the top 10. You know, like it, there's no get-rich-quick schemes. I mean, you're always grinding out and keeping maintaining and you know, you've developed an amazing culture. 
and obviously a massive um, figure in the league. His son's both coached. He had a great coaching tree, touched a lot of people. Hey, he lived to be 90 years old. I mean, remarkable life. There's also a trickle down, too, with an all-time great coach like that. When you're coaching that long, you touch a lot of people, a lot of other coaches, a coaching tree, and he was on the competition committee. So it's not just that he coached this one team or these couple of teams for a very long time. He touched the entire league. No, without question. Without question. And it brings me up to the next brings me to the next topic I wanted to ask you about because I, I was watching The Last Dance, the this awesome documentary, a ten piece documentary about the Bulls in the Jordan years. And you mentioned you've watched it before. And I don't know a ton about basketball. I mean, to be very honest, when Jordan came in the league, that happened to be the exact same time Mario Lemieux came to the NHL and I grew up without an NBA team. So I became, you know, swamped with hockey and of course, I knew Michael Jordan was, but I wasn't, you know, on watching every play or super into the NBA. So this has opened a lot of things up for me that I didn't know just as a historian. But it also got me to thinking, and this is what I wanted to ask you, is what one would you want to see if it was a football one? You know, like if 10 years from now they came out and said, we're going to do a documentary and in, in all this behind the scenes stuff, you know, what one would you want to see? I think there's some personally I would love to see the Harbaugh year 49ers behind the scene and and the foresight, by the way, of the Bulls organization and everybody involved to have a camera crew follow around that team all year because this doesn't happen without that. And in the NFL, they don't really like that. And even the hard knocks and a lot of teams produce their own and in the 49ers community, we call it soft knocks with the one that they produce for themselves and they show a little bit of behind the scenes stuff, but they don't show too much something this unfiltered and to have the time of the 20 years between when it was filmed and now to be able to allow it to breathe and then go back and interview people about it. But to have all of that footage from 1998 is pretty amazing. And the foresight that they allowed that to happen is really cool to make this sort of a documentary happen. But uh, thinking about the the NFL and teams you would love to see that with, uh, I think it's the ones that, that you know the least about from the inside perspective, you know a lot about from the outside, right, which is the Bill Belichick teams. I think those would be the most obvious to really get into his head and see how he works things behind the scenes, I think would be a phenomenal watch. You know, the Brady stuff and and the Garoppolo and hear those conversations about how uh, maybe Belichick wanted to go with Garoppolo instead of Brady or see the Brady exit and see some behind the scenes stuff there. So uh, absolutely Belichick's Patriots would be at the very top of the list to go along with Harbaugh's 49ers. No, oh, absolutely. I mean, like, it'd be awesome if you could see 60s Packers footage, 70s Steelers footage, you know, 80s um, 49ers footage. Ooh, 85 the, Bears, that would be an interesting right, one. Some right. characters Jimmy, there. Jimmy Johnson, Dallas teams. You know, how much oh. fun would they be? I mean, <laughs> that would so, actually, that's a really good one, too, because right. of some off-the-field activities, yeah. Yep, I mean, so a lot of these different eras would be awesome but someone asked me is there a player that would rival jordan in terms of marketability or you want to see what he does and i'm like no you know it'd be like no. maybe if tom brady and bo jackson and michael vick all rolled into one maybe but and then that got me thinking though the, the guy i want to see the the jordan i want to see is belichick you know it's right. exactly what you saw like if there was footage that came out 10 years after bill retires and it could mostly make him look good as this Jordan stuff does, but see some stuff behind the scenes. Like remember the, 
the clip of him in his SUV and he's like, this damn clock, I can't ever fix a clock. You know, like just little <laughs> things like that. Or even it's him sitting there with his dog on draft day. Like if you could give me, you know, five hours of that kind of footage of Belichick in a meeting with coaches or him and Brady behind the scenes talking about the team or a specific play or whatever, boy, I'd be glued to that. Some Al Davis Raiders teams would be fun too. Cool. How about the 2005 2006 era, the the Favre Packers after they drafted Aaron Rodgers and, and get some behind-the-scenes yeah. looks there. That would be pretty fun. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, but if there's one figure that I would say, I don't think any rival Jordan, but if one figure would I want to see, it, it would be Belichick. Yep. Just, you just don't know about him. Right, and get some unfiltered opinions. Get his unfiltered opinions, other people's unfiltered stuff about what was going on there. And and I think eventually we'll get some of that stuff. But obviously, mm-hmm. he's the last guy that would ever have a camera crew rolling into his house and, and let that happen for a season, unfortunately. And and we get the hard knocks, and that stuff's pretty cool. But I, I think the last dance is just so much more unfiltered in the time away from when it happened and to get a little a little bit closer perspective now of it is really cool. And it's a well-done documentary, so I'm glad we have something to watch there. So kudos to ESPN. I think they did a great job with that, Doc. I think it's been awesome. And my one little complaint, and again, I know that there's been speculation that this was even bigger than they talked about, but Jordan's quote, gambling problem. Yeah. I just look at it as this guy's the most competitive human being on the world. And him betting 10 grand is the same as me betting 10 bucks. So, I mean, <laughs> if I was gambling... 10 bucks all the time with my buddies. Nobody would say I had a gambling problem. You know what I mean? Like this guy just wants to compete in everything he does. And even if it's for a dollar, he talked to, you know, like Paxton and Purdue, he'd come up and play blackjack for them for a buck a hand or a quarter a hand. He just wanted to win. Right. Yeah. He's tossing quarters with the, with the, uh, the, the security guards security behind guard. the right, scenes. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, obviously it didn't impact his, his life and people want to, throw something at him and see if they can get it to stick. But obviously it wasn't a problem because it wasn't a problem, right? It was just something that he did and he competes. And if he didn't have that, he wouldn't be as great of a basketball player because it's that comp competitive edge, that, that competition, that, that drive that he has, he wouldn't be Michael Jordan. We wouldn't be watching a documentary about him. If he also didn't do things like gamble and compete when he was on the golf course or playing cards or whatever it is he did. Yeah. He wants it to matter. I mean, I, I didn't look at him as a, compulsive horrible gambler you know needed to get help or anything i just thought that's his personality and he had different means than the rest of us i had an opportunity it wasn't really a great opportunity but i had an opportunity to potentially gamble with jordan in lake tahoe they do that celebrity golf tournament every year in tahoe and there was at one of the casinos we were uh, doing some gambling me and a few friends happened to be there that weekend and it wasn't for that but it was just the weekend that we were there and Jordan was in this roped off high stakes area and it was Jordan and Emmett Smith. And that's about it at this one high end table. And we couldn't obviously match the, the, the limit or the, um, you know, the minimum needed sure. to go gamble at that stakes table. Are. But my friends and I, we kind of pulled our money together. Some of us had won some cash. We're like, okay, if we pull all of our money together, give it to one person, that'd be a hell of a story to go gamble with Emmett Smith and, and Michael Jordan and play some, <laughs> some blackjack with them at the high limit tables. But uh, we did not do it. So we had to settle for playing craps with John Smoltz, which was pretty cool too. Hey, that's not so bad. Yeah, not a bad story. All right, let's, uh, let's get into the AFC <laughs> South draft review next. 
Folks, I want to tell you about the Built Bar. You maybe haven't heard of them yet, but trust me, you're going to hear about them a lot because they're a new sponsor on the Locked On Network. They sent me a box the other day, and the box is gone. My family just crushed it. So they're going to be a popular thing in the Williamson household. I think you need to check them out, too. They're they're tasty. I mean, my kids honestly don't care about the, the wonderful uh, – attributes it's it's making their bodies they just want to eat good stuff and it's a protein bar that really does taste like a candy bar it comes in 16 amazing flavors eight of them are chocolate and nut flavors and the other eight are chocolate and nut free flavors we know a lot of people have allergies and whatnot bars are covered in 100 chocolate and trust me around here my family especially my wife is they're chocolate connoisseurs and they certainly approve it's soft and easy to chew built bar is great for the health conscious guy Lose or maintain weight, weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, but it doesn't taste that way. Trust me. Um, here's the flavor flavor profile. Like a peanut butter brownie one has 20 grams of protein, 170 calories, only three grams of sugar, three grams of net carbs. Um, the mint brownie one is 15 grams of protein, only 110 calories, four grams of sugars, five grams of net carbs. So, Folks, do this. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON, all one word, and you'll get $10 off your first order. Promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. All right. The Houston Texans are up first here, Matt, and they do not have a first-round draft pick. And by the way, they did re-up their... Offensive tackle Laramie Tunzel to a massive long-term contract uh, in the second round. They tabbed defensive tackle Ross Blacklock out of TCU in round three. They came back with Jonathan Greenard, outside linebacker out of Florida. Charlie Heck, offensive tackle from North Carolina in round four. A second pick in round four, John Reed, Penn State cornerback. And their final selection was in round five of this draft, Isaiah Coulter, speedy wide receiver out of Rhode Island, a small draft class, and that's what happens when you trade away a bunch of your picks, and obviously uh, they traded away some seconds and added some seconds with their flip-flopping of wide receivers and veterans. Uh, they brought in Brandon Cooks and out, obviously, well-documented DeAndre Hopkins. How are we feeling about this Houston Texans draft in 2020? Yeah, and first of all, I misspoke because I said last week or right after the draft that Every team does have their 2021 first. Well, Houston doesn't. I mean, Miami owns theirs from the Tunsil trade. So it's not like it gets better for them next year. Blacklock at 40 seems like a good buy. I, I didn't buy the Blacklock at 25. I don't quite see Geno Atkins, but they need pass rush help. He's a little different than the defensive lineman they've employed there lately. He's certainly not Will Fork or Reader. But I think they need all the pass rush help they can get. And even if he only is an interior guy on throwing downs, that makes some sense. I'm not a big, you know, Greenard fan. He seems like a very monotone athlete, edge setter, but not dynamic. It seems early for me. Um, I like the heck pick. You know, I mean, he probably will be a swing tackle, maybe comes in as a sixth offensive lineman early in his career, but a lot to work with. John Reed's one of my favorites. I mean, nearby Penn State here. He is super smart, super competitive, slot corner. I, I thought he'd last a little longer, but it didn't shock me when he came off the board. He's a good player. And Isaiah Coulter is interesting, too. I mean, one more receiver to add to this mix. They're kind of taking the 
uh, quantity over quality approach at the wide receiver position, but you know, small school guy that has a chance. Yeah. Small school guy, really productive, probably my favorite pick of this draft for them where they got him in round five. So I, I like Isaiah Coulter as a developmental wide receiver. See what you got there. Brings a little bit of everything to the table before the catch, after the catch. Ross Blacklock, I, I, I totally agree with what you said on Blacklock. I like where he was selected. Wasn't buying that first round hype for him. I like the athleticism as an interior rusher. I think he could become a pretty darn good uh, interior pass rusher, but he still only had three sacks last year yeah. and had some injuries throughout his career. He missed an entire season, I believe in 2018. Um, so I like the athleticism. I want to see some more production with that athleticism, though, even though, you know, he's able to move around really well and rush the passer. So we'll see if he can, you know, add that last little bit of actually getting home to the quarterback. But the way he leaps out of his stance for a guy who's 6'3", 290 is, is a borderline special trait, which is why I think people saw that and were like, okay, give me that. I'll take that as a first-round pass rusher just because the, the tackle class wasn't very deep and he still was the third tackle, but all the way down at, at pick 40, which I think is a much better spot for him. And uh, in the middle rounds, Zach Greenard, he, he doesn't jump off the tape to me as a, an edge guy. And then Charlie Heck is sort of a, a high-floor, low-ceiling guy who I liked that I think was underrated throughout the process because he's pretty good, but he's not somebody who... Uh, you know, height, well, he's big, so he has the height, but as far as the athleticism, you're like, yeah, well, I don't know if he projects to being a left tackle in the NFL or even a starting tackle. So, you know, a fine pick there on day three, but, you know, uh, overall, just not really in love with this draft class. And when you don't have a first rounder, it's hard to have a really high grade, but I thought maybe they could have even done better with the picks they did have. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, like, like you said, my favorite pick is the John Reed one. Your favorite pick was the Coulter one. You know, we're talking about fourth and fifth round guys. I don't have a problem with Blacklock. I don't love Greener. You know, Heck's not going to help you right now, but tackles are valuable. It's okay. The Indianapolis Colts had a ton of draft picks, but they also did not have a first rounder because they traded it to the 49ers, the number 13 overall selection for the right to sign DeForest Buckner to a huge deal. Before we get to the rest of their draft class, how do you feel about that move on its own, knowing that the 49ers had one of the top tackles that they ended up selecting at 13. Would you rather trade your first and the opportunity to draft Javon Kinlaw at defensive tackle or pay DeForest Buckner $22 million a year? That's, that's tough because, I mean, more and more, if you're a Khalil Mack, Jalen Ramsey type trade, the team that trades the star usually kind of wins in the end when after you give up two firsts and all the cap space. And I know, you know, he was only, Buckner's only a one. But, like, when I was in Indy for the the Combine, it was, like, obvious talk throughout the, the Combine circles that they're going to sign Rivers, and then priority number two is they're going to find the most dominant front-line player on defense they can get, you know, that they have a ton of cap space. So I like the move for both teams. I think it really worked out well for the Niners. And the Colts just had so much cap space, right. and that's not really how they want to operate. They don't want to be fighting for free agents the day free agency opens and overpaying. That's just not how they're built. So they had the cap space, so I like it, because they are trying to win now. He's a great player. He's young. So I'm cool with that. Right, and I think that's the key for me with the Colts on this side of this trade is they had the cap space. So they had the ability to say, look, we can guarantee ourselves a good player here rather than flipping the coin in the draft. And we have the cap space. So if you have that space and you're able to make a move like that, get a player who's still young 
entering his prime years into Forrest Buckner, then it makes some sense, which is why I had called this trade a win-win all along. But, you know, when you consider how much cheaper Kinlaw will be if he does hit and becomes that monster inside, then it definitely tilts toward the 49ers. But again, that's an if, and, and there's no guarantee he'll be anywhere near as good as DeForest Buckner. Yeah, and I don't think trades, one team wins, one team loses. I mean, this one I look at and think it's a win-win as we stand today. I think both teams are very happy with it, right? You know, and how it went down. Right. Let's go to the Colts' actual picks that they did make. And in round two, they selected Michael Pittman, wide receiver out of USC. They came back and traded up for Jonathan Taylor, running back out of Wisconsin. A nice little one-two there in the second round. Round three, Utah safety Julian Blackman. Jacob Eason, strong-arm quarterback in round four out of Washington. Danny Pinter, a guard from Ball State in round five. They had four sixth-round picks. Robert Windsor, defensive tackle from Penn State. Isaiah Rogers, UMass corner. Desmond Patman, wide receiver out of Washington State. And they finished it up with Jordan Glasgow, Michigan, inside linebacker. I like it. Again, didn't have a first-round pick. Um, I kind of feel like the face of the franchise isn't necessarily Phillip Rivers, but Quentin Nelson. You know, like, we're going to be big (laughs) and physical and pound your face and... That's the way it goes, and Jonathan Taylor is going to be our bell cow for the next three years, and kind of like the Dobbins conversation we had yesterday, Mac will stand in his way for a little, but Mac's a free agent after the year, and they're going to hand him the ball a lot behind Nelson and company. I love Pittman, and I feel like it was a little bit of a gift for Rivers, who threw, you know, think about... Floyd and Vincent Jackson and Mike Williams and all the huge targets, even Gates and Henry that that Rivers has had such success success with in the past. They didn't have that big target. And Pittman was, be very honest, somebody I was really keeping my fingers crossed would fall to the Steelers at 49. And it became pretty obvious that he's too good to fall that far. I think this year Hilton will be the man. And then going forward, Pittman will be, their leading receiver, and maybe a star in the league. So two big physical players on the offensive side of the ball to start things off, but really good value in my opinion. Blackman's just a do-it-all good player. And I thought Eason, they put themselves in a good enough position that they can take that flyer. You know, that they want a pocket passer. I don't think they care about athleticism as much as the quarterback position. We have the line back to Nelson that we can protect this guy and drop back and sling it. And you can learn behind Rivers. We'll see what happens with Brissett. But if it doesn't work out, oh, well. And then Pinter, I liked a lot, too. I mean, Pinter is a little different than the Nelson clone, though. I mean, he's more the zone blocker, former tight end. I think he'll be a move guard or maybe even like a smart center type when it's all said and done. But for now, he's your sixth guy at at best. And just let him learn, get stronger. And honestly, they're four six-rounders I don't know much about. They're kind of off the boards for me. Yeah, Desmond Patton's the only one I watched yeah. a lot of at wide receiver at, out of Washington State. You know, tall, has speed, but there's uh, some rawness and stiffness to his game. I'm not super high on him, but in the sixth round, you swing on some athleticism there. And similarly to Jacob Eason, fourth-rounder, I was not high at all on Jacob Eason, but if you're going to swing on a guy with the arm strength there, day three is when you do it. So I'm okay with that pick. But really what I love was the Pittman selection because you look at what teams did in the first round at wide receiver, and I thought there was that tier of wide receivers after the top three guys, and really it was kind of the top two. I had a Ruggs third, but I wasn't as sold on Ruggs as I was, I was Judy and Lamb. And after those guys, when you look at uh, whether it's Ayuk or Jefferson or... Um, 
who else went in the there's one more I'm missing here. Jalen Rager. Right. Rager. Pittman's closer to those guys, right, than than maybe the next group of wide receivers that were taken later in the draft. So to me, they got a guy who I wouldn't have quibbled with if he went in the first round. They got that guy at the top of the second round in Pittman. And I like the Vincent Jackson comps. I've seen that a little bit recently. Michael Pittman and then Jonathan Taylor. I'm not a running back in the top 50 guy, but I mean, I kind of like the fit here. And again, they're a team that had so many draft picks. Let's go get our guy here if they were going to take a running back. They went up to get maybe the best, a guy that really fits their scheme that can be a home run hitter for them. But my question is now, and we talked about this with the Rams, Marlon Mack, what's the stock like for him in both uh, the NFL universe and the fantasy football universe when your team drafts a a high-profile running back high in the second round? Yeah, and I've mentioned before that I'm real into Dynasty for fantasy, and I'm actually about to record a Dynasty blueprint as soon as we hang up here. But I've also teased you know, my Dynasty ranks, and – Taylor is my second rookie overall. And what, what dynasty is, is you get these guys and you draft them and you keep them forever. Not that you can't trade them or whatnot, but running backs have more value, but it might shock people. Pittman's my ninth player overall. I mean, the only receivers for dynasty I have ahead of them are Judy Lamb and Rager. And I'm really torn between Rager and Pittman as my eight, nine. So I'm really high on both these guys to be highly productive players for the foreseeable future. All right, let's get to the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Tennessee Titans next. Guys and gals, start the competition today with people important in your mom's life. Mother's Day is her Super Bowl, so celebrate this Mother's Day by scoring her favorite gift of the day. Your mom will be able to travel in her mind to exotic India, sample the food, and laugh at the perils of raising a teenager in 1950s India through a new book of fiction called The Henna Artist. By the way, it's Reese Witherspoon's book club's pick for May. Then, anytime in May, post a picture of your Mother's Day recipient holding the ebook or book on Instagram or Facebook and tag the author at the Alkajoshi. A donation of four meals per post, up to 10,000 meals, will go to Feeding America. So, guys and gals, buy the henna artist today at your favorite bookseller, including Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Costco, and Target, and make mom the ultimate winner in your family. Well, the first two teams we talked about did not have first-round picks, so the Jaguars had two of them. So that will give us a little bit extra to talk about, and they had a ton of picks on day three as well. A lot to get into here with the Jacksonville Jaguars, who selected cornerback C.J. Henderson out of Florida, their biggest need, I think. They came back with outside linebacker pass rusher Caleb Von Chason from LSU with pick 20 in round one. LaVisca Chenault, wide receiver from Colorado in round two. Uh, Devon Hamilton, defensive tackle out of Ohio State in round three. Three fourth-round picks. Ben Barch, a tackle guard from St. John's, small school guy there that's had a lot of buzz coming out of the Senior Bowl. Josiah Scott, corner from Michigan State. And Shaquille Quarterman, Miami inside linebacker in round four. Round five, two more picks. Daniel Thomas, uh, safety from Auburn, Colin Johnson, the tall wide receiver out of Texas. In round six, Jake Luton, a quarterback from Oregon State, Tyler Davis, Georgia Tech tight end. And in round seven, Chris Claybrooks, a corner out of Memphis. How do we feel about this Jacksonville Jaguars haul, Matt? It's a good haul. I mean, there's no question about that. But I feel like they're replenishing like that they had this good defense they had a, what was beginning to be a strong roster and now all those dudes are gone so now Henderson's got to replace Ramsey and Chason's got to replace Nadok way and you know what I mean like 
it, it, it feels like you're chasing the guys ahead of you. And that, that that's probably unfair to this class overall. I mean, it's not Chason's fault or Henderson's fault or what any, any of those things, but you added a lot of picks, you know, three fourth rounders, two fifth rounders, two firsts, of course. So, I think the quantity of it is is strong. I, I just think that the the team's kind of in a bad place and and you know running uphill a little bit. Did you see the Ben Barch before and afters from when he got to campus yeah. in college and he was a tight end and then see his growth and just they're just his headshots. So you see his face and as his face grew and his body grew and his facial hair grew and he's just like a completely different person from this little, you know, this little baby man human uh, as, a, as an 18-year-old to this 22, 23-year-old grown man that was an NFL draft prospect. It was pretty cool to see that transition for a player that goes, goes from tight end to offensive tackle in the NFL. And you can see why he ended up at St. John's. I mean, I'm sure LSU wasn't exactly calling that guy that picture yeah. number one, the before <laughs> right. pictures. It was not like, oh, I'm going to Michigan or Ohio State or Oklahoma. Um what do you think of the Chenault pick? You know, just yeah. kind of, we were talking a little bit of fantasy. I love the player. Um, I don't love the fit there. I, I thought Chenault throughout the process was a little overrated. Maybe I didn't watch enough 2018 pre-injury Chenault because in 2019, I was looking for that. Ath- People were talking about his wow, freakish athleticism. And I like his strength and his size and his ability after the catch is clear, but I didn't see a wow athlete. So I was thinking, slow down on the mid first round talk with this guy, even from the, the beginning, and then he, he didn't run well, and he's had the injury concerns, so that drops him down. So I feel a lot better about him in round two. Get him the, get the ball in his hands right and let him make plays on the ball, but I still have questions about what kind of a pure wide receiver he can be. He still has a lot of work to do as a route runner and as a pure wide receiver, but I feel a lot better with him in this range than I did as him being talked about as a first-round draft pick. So, you know, obviously injuries is the big concern there because the best ability is availability. I like Chase on at 20. You know, Yannick Ngakwe replacement there, C.J. Henderson. Uh, they had to do something at cornerback, and it was pretty clear that that Henderson wasn't going to make it to pick 20 as you saw this thing go on. I, I mean, I don't think they blew me away with their selections and the value, but I can see how this could go really well as uh, you know, for them with, you know, Barch and you get down to some of these players that I like, that can make an impact on day three for them even. And then obviously those two first and second rounder, if those guys hit, cause there's high upside with all three of them. Yeah, agreed. And I think they were smart to address the passing game. You go corner pass rusher receiver slash weapon Hamilton's more of a nose type, so he doesn't quite fit that bill, but another offensive tackle to develop. And I love the idea of developing a tackle because Jags fans are not going to the Super Bowl this year, but maybe he can help you down the line. And Josiah Scott is also a, you know, a good corner, um, a tough guy, a slot guy. And Scott and Quarterman, who was picked right after him, are both considered high-character, tough dudes, and I think they could use some of that. Let's move on to the Tennessee Titans. We don't have a lot of time left, and it was an interesting draft. There was a lot of rumors about Isaiah Wilson, the other tackle from Georgia after Andrew Thomas went earlier in round one, that Wilson would sneak into round one, and he did. 29 overall to the Tennessee Titans. They came back in round two and drafted LSU cornerback Christian Fulton. Round three, Darrington Evans, speedy running back out of Appalachian State. Uh, the Rail Murchison, a North Carolina State defensive tackle in round five, and then a pair of seventh rounders, Hawaii quarterback Cole McDonald and Marshall safety Chris Jackson. But to me, it's all about those first two picks. And to be honest with you, I had 
Fulton as the first rounder and Wilson as the second rounder. So even though I thought Wilson went a little bit high because I don't like his athleticism and his stiffness, even as strong as he is. And I get what they're trying to do there uh, on offense and, and pound the ball with the way they're built in Tennessee. If you flip those, I don't have a problem with it. So I guess I'm cool with with their draft picks early. And I really do like the sleeper, Darrington Evans. I thought he might have slipped into day three, which would have been a total steal. But his speed, perfect complement there to Derrick Henry, I think, in the backfield in Tennessee. Yeah, I think he's a really good compliment to Henry. He attacks things hard and runs a million miles an hour and is somewhat a little bit straight line-ish. And, but that's kind of what Henry is. They're just in different body types, yeah. you know, and they, he runs away from people. He should have some substantial holes to hit and get upfield, develop as a receiver, uh, maybe factor in down the line. I don't know that Henry will be back next year. So um, a nice guy to have as an upgrade on Deion Lewis and get younger there. And you're, you're right. If they would have went Fulton Wilson, everyone would be like, boy, what an awesome draft. <laughs> and when they took, you know, when they took Wilson, I went, oh yeah, they just moved on from Conklin. Of course they took Wilson and Derrick Henry's going to run behind that big sucker all day long. You know, I don't think he's a first round player, but for them, okay. And I didn't think Fulton would last to 61. I also think Cole McDonald has some traits. So th- think about him a year or two down the road, or if, if we get to see preseason, I want to watch Cole McDonald. Yeah, Cole McDonald, seventh-round pick. He definitely has some athletic ability, some arm, enough to stick, or he could not stick, but whatever. He's a seventh-round draft pick. That can go in a number of directions there as he develops as a quarterback in the NFL. But Wilson, it's funny because he was one of the easiest evaluations, I think, to me, and we'll see if I'm right about it, but because he will crush you if he gets his hands. I mean, he is so strong, and he was, I think, a a redshirt sophomore, right? So really young guy with his size, and, and people talked about how big Makai Becton was like Isaiah Wilson's right there, you know, six, six, 350 pounds. He's a monster. And if he gets his hands on you, he will, he will kill people and he'll knock people out of the way. The strength is there, but I just didn't see the movement skills. So that worries me a little bit that he could potentially have some problems if they try to get him on the move a little bit or, and he's not going to get smaller and, and faster most likely than he is right no. now. So that worries me a little bit about him. It reminds me a little bit actually of the Seahawks draft last year where they got the first round value in DK Metcalf in round two and they took LJ Collier in round one. I think uh, Wilson's probably a better prospect than Collier is, but it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, it, it looks like that uh, when you look back on it, you're like, okay, well, they got themselves a starting corner, which is a first-round value there in Fulton, and, and there's obvious reasons why Fulton fell. I think there's some off-field stuff. He had somebody else pee in a cup for him in college, which is always going to hurt your draft stock when you do yeah, something that upon. when you do something that stupid. But, man, you put on the Fulton tape against a first-round receiver like Henry Ruggs, and I'm sold. I'm like, okay. If you can, as, as he was so calm covering a guy that runs four two seven. Really did such a good job. That sold me on Christian Fulton as a cornerback. Yeah, yeah. Again, really good value at a, a need position. Ryan isn't going to be back. I'm not exactly sure how the who's on the outside, who's going to be the slot is going to work out. They'll figure that out. And you know, you mentioned Wilson, and I agree with you. I mean, he mashes people. He worries me a little bit about his you know agility and pass protection. But I think he's worth more to the Titans than he is any other team. The fit. Yeah, you really love the fit there. And it's pretty easy to see why. Okay, right tackle. Conklin goes on. Obvious if there's if there was and actually I had Isaiah Wilson mocked when I heard all those rumors. I had him mocked to Tennessee in my final mock draft because it was like, okay, well, that's the obvious fit. If he is going to go round one right tackle Tennessee Titans. So I see it. for sure. Yeah. Again, as soon as that card came across, 
Oh, yeah. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some pretty tight teams here in that division. Uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, most people obviously will think is the distant fourth place there. But Houston, Indy, Tennessee, did anybody maybe jump in front for you after this draft? No, but I like what the Colts did. I mean, you had Buckner, Taylor, Pittman. That's a nice addition at all the right spots. Yeah, it's going to be hard for me not to pick the Colts, I think, first place in this division. But it's going to be a fun division to track for sure in 2020. And we'll see exactly what the schedule looks like later in the week. There's going to be a Twitter Thursday for us this week. And tomorrow we'll finish up our draft reviews with the AFC East right here, Locked on NFL.